life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium. And iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium. Where is the world's largest supply of lithium found? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text your answer and queries of any kind of a scientific nature to 514-800. Plus, we have a question left over from last week. What is the approximate ratio of fat in butter versus the fat in margarine? Again, 514-790-0800. Well, welcome aboard. I'm Joe Schwartz. I uh, chat with you here every Sunday afternoon from 3 to 4. And when I'm not doing that, I'm uh, at work directing McGill's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate to separate sense from nonsense, fact from myth, and of course, as you know, there's plenty of that around uh, these days. The same way that uh, we've had uh, uh, huge breakthroughs in science uh, in the last two years, thanks to uh, COVID, we've also had an infusion of all kinds of misinformation and disinformation. And uh, sometimes it is hard to try to keep our heads above uh, water when it comes to trying to separate the sense from the nonsense. All right, before we get into other stuff today, I'll do a little fishing with you here. And uh, this fishing was done in Labrador. Then the fish tasted like it had just been caught. And Clarence Birdseye was amazed. Interesting name, Birdseye, right? Memorable one. Anyway, Clarence Birdseye had eaten frozen foods before, but they had never tasted quite right. What was the difference? This fish did not come from any commercial processing facility, did not come from a supermarket. It had been frozen by the Inuit fisherman right after he had caught it through a hole in the ice. Birdseye consumed that epic meal sometime around 1914, while he was working as a surveyor for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Labrador. The winter temperatures sometimes reached minus 40 degrees in Labrador. And I don't have to say minus 40 Celsius or Fahrenheit. You know why? Because at minus 40, those two temperatures are equal. All right, so at minus 40 degrees in Labrador, uh, this meant that any fish that were caught and left in the open air would quickly freeze after being pulled from the water. Perhaps, birds, I thought, this rapid freezing was the key to the retention of the texture and the flavor. He was correct. If food is frozen slowly, there's time for its water content to convert to large ice crystals, and these can damage cells. They can actually burst cells, and that leads to a mushy texture and uh, also a change in the taste. Quick freezing results in much smaller ice crystals that are less disruptive. Once Clarence Birdseye returned to the U.S., he followed up on his Labrador experience and experimented with flash freezing of fish fillets and soon developed a patented double belt freezer in which cartons of fish were frozen as they passed between two refrigerated surfaces 
and these were cooled by a brine solution, very much like uh, you know brine solutions that are used in uh, artificial uh, skating rinks. In 1925, he founded the General Seafood Corporation, and four years later, after further improvements of the machinery, Birdseye sold the company to Postum, which eventually became General Foods Corporation. The price was a stunning $22 million. Well, in today's money, that would be about $320 million. That was a stunning amount. Uh, Postum was a company that was uh, founded by uh, Post. And Post had uh, been intrigued by the Kellogg brothers' uh, visions of marketing cereals. And uh, he started his own company and became rich by selling uh, Post cereals. And as I said, that eventually became General Foods. Anyway, uh, Postum bought uh, the General Seafood Company from Birdseye. Now, Birdseye, of course, did not invent frozen foods. The ancient Chinese already had been preserving food in ice caves, and American food producers had dabbled with selling frozen foods. But Birdseye technology had made the food far more palatable, so people were willing to buy these foods because they looked good and they tasted fine. Frozen peas were marketed as being, quote, as gloriously green as any you will see next summer. And soon the peas were joined by spinach and fruits and berries and meat. Now, frozen foods competed with canned foods. Canned foods, of course, had been around for a very long time, uh, since the 1800s. And the public, of course, had become accustomed to eating canned foods. But frozen foods got a huge boost in sales during World War II when cans were rationed. Now, there were a couple of reasons for this. Canned foods were ideal to be sent overseas to soldiers. And, of course, there was also the issue of conserving metals for the war effort. And tin was especially needed because it was useful for airplane parts and for solder, which of course is used in all kinds of, uh, of machinery. So the public was encouraged to eat uh, frozen foods uh, in order that uh, tin could be saved for military purposes and so that canned foods would go to um, the soldiers in, in Europe. Today, frozen foods of course are very popular and the science is, is very sound. Often the frozen versions of fruits and vegetables will be more nutritious than canned and even more nutritious than freshly picked. Why? Because uh, they are flash frozen immediately after being picked. There's no time lag there for nutrients to decompose. And furthermore, there's no heat treatment involved so that uh, vitamins are not destroyed. With the canning process, there is, of course, pasteurization involved, and that can uh, affect the heat label nutrients, such as uh, vitamin C. So uh, frozen foods are, are very, very popular today, uh, not only for uh, consumers, but also, of course, in, in industry. Uh, so much of the meat, for example, you know, uh, that is, used for hamburgers and fast food restaurants. It all comes as frozen patties. And uh, so uh, the freezing industry, which traces back to 
Clarence Birdseye's observation that uh, quickly frozen fish in uh, Labrador were more tasty and had a better texture. And uh, uh, Birdseye was a very interesting man. I mean, he had numerous patents, uh, not only for uh, frozen foods. He made other contributions uh, as well. He developed a machine uh, to process um, the leftover parts of sugarcane into usable materials. Sugarcane, of course, is widely grown uh, because when it is squeezed, it expresses the juice. And when that juice is, is processed and the water evaporated off, you, of course, get sugar. But what do you do with the stuff that is left behind called bagasse? And uh, Birdseye invented a, a machine that separated the different components of the remnants of the, um, the sugarcane and uh, isolate, the machine was able to isolate the fibers that could be packed solid and uh, make uh, paper, for example, and packaging materials, which is still done today. And uh, uh, today the food industry is especially interested in making novel packaging materials because uh, of the trend to stay away from um, perfluoroalkyl substances, which make uh, packaging paper, for example, resistant to water uh, and to, to fatty materials. So there's an interest in, in finding other means of packaging uh, foods. And uh, the bagasse, this is this leftover material from sugarcane, uh, can be processed into um, packaging uh, materials. And it's uh, economically sound and uh, it uh, does not necessarily require the uh, perfluoroalkyl substances if the packaging can be made in such a way that the fibers are packed so close together that uh, neither fat nor water can go through them. And uh, that, uh, that can be done uh, these days. All right, so there's the interesting story for you about uh, Clarence Birdseye and the history of uh, frozen foods which uh, dates back to roughly uh, 1914. And today, of course, is just a, a gigantic industry. All right, let me just uh, remind you of the questions that uh, we have uh, out there. One, the first question is, where is the world's largest supply of lithium found? Lithium is uh, important for many, many uh, reasons. And of course, I'll discuss that as soon as we get the answer to this question. And the other one, which is still left over from last week, and I'm surprised that we did not get an answer to that, what is the approximate ratio of fat in butter versus fat in margarine? If you know the answer to either of those, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. And of course, you can ask whatever science-oriented question you may have. You can text me at 514-800 as well. Well, before we look for those answers, and before I talk to you about chicken soup, we're going to take a look at what traffic is all about out there. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, let's uh, go to the lines and uh, hija. Hello? Hi. Hi. Go ahead. Uh -huh. <laughs> Thank you. 
I have a question on this uh, tinnitus. I've been suffering last uh, three years, almost uh, 24-7, and found this uh, big steel shark tank uh, history. They are a product called uh, CBD gummies. And mm -hmm. another name they have is uh, um, the well, CBD is cannabidiol. Pardon it's a me? cannabis uh, derivative. It uh, is. Yeah. Uh, tinnitus is, of course, a very complex condition, and it has numerous causes, you know, sometimes from, from trauma to side effects of certain medications. Uh, what I can tell you is that none of the herbal remedies, such as ginkgo biloba, which often suggested, or zinc or vitamin B12, none of those have ever been shown to be effective. So there, there is no so-called natural treatment for uh, tinnitus. There mm -hmm. are all kinds of approaches that I know, you know, have have been tried, from um, using various kinds of of sound masking devices or you know sound machines, uh, sometimes even antidepressants. Uh, but I know that this is a very very challenging problem and. Uh, it very rarely has a satisfactory solution. So okay, so, so if it's a cannabis-related um, product, is um, I know people smoke and all that. Uh, uh, well, I, yeah. I certainly have never seen any evidence that that can have any effect on, on uh, tinnitus, and I would be very, very suspicious about any claims. But okay. you know, I mean, if you are suffering from tinnitus, I mean, you must be under the care of a of a physician. So um, run it, run it by them. You know, I mean, sometimes when you're desperate, anything is worth a try, and you know, it may be possible that it does something. It just doesn't. It hasn't so far been scientifically investigated. It's possible. Yes. And uh, it, this uh, is a uh, two lady uh, chemist uh, came out uh, with this apparently, and uh, first thought in my head was talking to the best chemist in the whole wide world, Dr. Joe. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, the the question always to ask when you see something like this: Has this been published? Are there any studies that have you know shown any effectiveness? And uh, I would suspect that when you would ask those questions to the, quote, inventors of, of this product, they would not be able to refer you to any, any kind of study because it hasn't been done. Anyway, good luck. Good luck. Uh, uh, I wish I could tell you a simple solution to, to uh, tinnitus, but I don't think there is one. All right. Uh, let's go to Ryan. Ryan. Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Dr. Joe, you asked about uh, lithium, where there might be a lot of it, and there's a lot of it up north, uh, northern Quebec, maybe some Ontario, so I don't know if that's the answer you're looking for. No, it isn't. The question was, the world's largest supply of lithium, where is it found? And it's certainly not in northern Quebec. And I ask another question. Yeah. Um, there's uh, work going on uh, using to use ammonia because it's rich in hydrogen, and because it remains liquid under reasonable pressures at normal temperatures, uh, using it as a source of hydrogen and fuel cells to power cars. Do you think yes. that there's going to be a methodology that can manufacture uh, 
Uh, ammonia, since there's a plentiful nitrogen, plenty of oh, water. Oh, yes. I mean, <clears throat> ammonia as a fuel is a subject of a great deal of research. But the problem with all of these alternate te technologies, whether you're using pure ammonia as fuel or whether you're using it to, to generate hydrogen, is the economics. And uh, right now, it's just, you know, economically not, not viable. Furthermore, there's also the transportation problem uh, with with uh, with hydrogen. But uh, the world is, you know, looking forward to a potential hydrogen economy because hydrogen is a very clean burning fuel. And uh, you know, I mean, obviously, it could be a replacement for fossil fuels. Everyone is looking into alternate fuels, but there's the question of economics. Okay, uh, all right. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit, more than even a little bit, uh, about uh, chicken soup. Always interested in this uh, for several reasons. One is because of its uh, rich history, and the other is because of its potential in, in theory. Uh, many centuries ago, Moses Maimonides, and so we're going back now to the 12th century, made the claim that soup made from an old chicken is of benefit against chronic fevers. Well, uh, uh, as you may know, Maimonides was a medieval Sephardic uh, Jewish philosopher and uh, also a physician. He actually was uh, a physician to Saladin, who was the ruler of Egypt and Syria uh, back at, at that time. It was very interesting. Uh, Saladin, of course, was uh, Muslim, and uh, he had it as chief physician, uh, Jewish Maimonides. Anyway, that's another story for another time. Well, modern science has actually shown that there may be some validity to the claim that chicken soup is Jewish penicillin. <laughs> Back in 1978, researchers at Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami Beach demonstrated that chicken soup can clear the airways of a cold sufferer. Furthermore, it seems that it is not only the hot vapors emanating from the soup which are beneficial, but the soup itself. The decongestant effect was even noted when the soup was sipped through a straw in a covered cup. All of this resulted in the launching, believe it or not, of Mount Sinai brand chicken soup as a consumer item. Uh, there was no double blind or double no studies, and uh, I think it, it kind of slipped off the uh, marketplace. Back in 2000, scientists at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha showed that chicken soup, according to an old grandmother's recipe, inhibits the movement of white blood cells, the neutrophils. And these cells go to the site of infection and release enzymes that attack bacteria and viruses, but at the same time also attack the body's own cells, causing inflammation. And somehow chicken soup reduces the inflammation effect without reducing the activity. What's the active ingredient? Well, the suggestion has been that it's the amino acid cysteine. And there's some evidence that this compound can lead to the thinning of the mucus in the lungs, making it easier to expel. And this effect can be increased if the soup is spicy, since spices are also known to trigger mucus secretion. Garlic in the chicken soup is great. In fact, in the 17th century, William Harvey, the physician who figured out that blood circulates around the body, recommended placing a garlic clove inside a shoe for bronchitis. While the effectiveness of this regimen is questionable, 
garlic can indeed be detected in the breath after a few hours showing that its components are absorbed into the body. The resulting smell may keep people away and by that means slow the transmission of the cold. But I don't think the garlic itself is going to do very much. But chicken soup sure tastes good. Whether it's therapeutic or not, well, that's a different uh, question. All right. The, um, the question that I asked about where the world's leading supply of lithium can be found, uh, I haven't had an answer, and uh, neither have I had uh, any of the texted comments uh, give me the uh, proper answer. Okay, there have been all kinds of, of uh, suggestions about Afghanistan, about coming from brine in Chile or the fields in, in Bolivia or in Nevada. None of those is correct. So it is, I'm still looking for the largest source of lithium in the world, the largest supply of lithium. Where is it to be found? Give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text me at 514-800. But right now, we have to check the CTV News. We'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. The uh, Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, uh, are doing very well with COVID now and uh, basically have fully lifted their restrictions and are back to pretty well a, a normal life. How come? Well, of course, they still have some, some infections. It's not, it's not that the virus has been wiped out, but they have been very successful in battling it for several reasons. First of all, the vaccination rate is is very high, uh, well over eighty percent, and in sometimes you know uh, approaching ninety percent. Uh, and the reason that it is high is because they tend to trust authorities in those countries. Uh, they're very socially responsible in uh, Denmark, Sweden, and, and Norway. Uh, they respect the government because the government has given them essentially lots of services and benefits. There's free health care, free education, uh, free elderly care, free care for young, young children. Uh, so it's a very, very organized society, and people trust each other, and they trust the authorities. And uh, they are much more prone to follow government recommendations because they trust the government scientists. So when they say get vaccinated, uh, people do. And uh, it has paid off. Also, because of the high education level in Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, uh, there is far less attention uh, paid to the conspiracy theories. They mostly laugh at the things that are taken seriously by some people here in, uh, in North America. So it's interesting to reflect on um, why indeed they are doing so well. I think it's a combination of many issues, but certainly good education uh, responsible societal habits and uh, not listening to the nonsensical conspiracy theories has a lot to do with it. All right, uh, let's go to Arthur. Arthur. 
Yeah, hi, doctor. I think China is the biggest uh, producer of lithium. No, it isn't. It isn't. And I didn't ask the question of who is the biggest producer of lithium. I asked where is the world's biggest supply of lithium. Where All right, is the let, supply? Let's go. You want to uh, give an answer to that? only trans fat in margarine? There's no fat in margarine? Sorry, say it again. The uh, the answer about the the uh, the ratio of uh, fat yeah. to, is uh, there no there's no fat in margarine, is there? It's trans yes. fat. <laughs> there certainly is fat in margarine. Oh, okay. In fact, the answer to that question is that the f fat content of margarine and butter is the same. It is eighty percent. So why is margarine thought to be healthier? because of the type of fat that it contains. Butter is mostly saturated fat, and traditionally that has been thought to be an uh, influential factor in, in uh, cardiovascular disease, whereas margarine is made uh, with a higher proportion of unsaturated fats, which are less implicated. But this is very controversial. And uh, furthermore, at, at one point, there was a concern about margarine because it also contained trans fats. Uh, that, that problem has been resolved. But fat content of margarine and butter is exactly the same. Doctor. All right, let's go to Al. Al. Good afternoon there, Dr. Joe. Thanks for taking the call. Yeah, I believe the answer to your lithium question uh, is Bolivia, which is the, uh, the world's largest uh, lithium uh, reserve. And uh, No, it isn't. No, it's not Bolivia, according to nope. what I found uh, on Google. By far, it's not. By oh, far. Well, they claim yeah. that they have over 21 million tons of uh, estimated lithium, and they're part of the lithium triangle in South America. No, that, that is an infinitesimal amount oh, compared to oh, the world's okay. greatest source. Okay, well, and my question has to do with, you spoke about frozen foods earlier, and I, I had a question about frozen turkeys. Now, we were shopping around before Thanksgiving for a turkey, and I noticed that there were basically two different types of turkeys available, frozen and, uh, and fresh. So um, in the frozen category, uh, if I can name the brand, it was Butterball. They were offering a frozen stuffed turkey that was ready to be uh, put into the oven, and uh, no thawing required. In fact, uh, thawing was not uh, recommended. In the past, we used to thaw a turkey over a period of two or three days in the fridge and then uh, stuff it and, and put it in the oven. So I started Googling around to try and understand why this was not recommended. And it wasn't very clear, but some, um, some statements even suggested uh, not to eat the turkey if you thawed it uh, uh, because it was intended to be uh, placed directly into the oven. Could you explain why it's dangerous or not recommended to uh, to thaw one of these type of turkeys? The the turkeys are very large, right? And it takes a very long time to thaw it out. So if there is any possible bacterial contamination inside or on the surface of the turkey, during the thawing process, those bacteria can multiply because that bird can spend some time at a higher temperature. Whereas if you put it directly into the oven, uh, of course, uh, there's no chance for the bacteria oh, okay. to multiply. Okay, is, is it because the plastic wrap that uh, uh, would contain the contamination rather than allow it to drip off? No, I don't think so. 
So, okay, well, they were, I'm just curious about that. And I'm very surprised that Bolivia is not the, the number one uh, source of uh, the, and this Google site must be uh, must be an error because they claim Bolivia has 25% of the world uh, reserve of lithium. So, anyway. Well, that is, that is wrong by a large factor. And when we get the answer, you'll find out why. Okay, let's see. Maybe George has that answer. George? Yeah, hi. Hi. Hello. Uh, I, I believe, uh, unless I'm mistaken with the uh, salt flats, uh, somewhere southwest of United States, Arizona. Nope, no. No? no? Incorrect, incorrect. All right, I see <laughs> that this, uh, this question has uh, stymied uh, a lot of you. Uh, because everyone was concentrating uh, not on the question that I asked. The question I asked is, what is the world's largest supply of lithium? Where is that found? I didn't ask what country ha is the largest producer of, of, uh, of lithium, but where most of the world's lithium is found. And there's 5,000 times more lithium found in what is the answer to this question than in Bolivia or any of the other places that I've mentioned. So what is that? It is the world's oceans. The, the, the concentration of lithium in the oceans is very, very low. That is true. But because of the vast amount of water in the oceans, the amount of lithium is tremendous. And I said 5,000 times more as can be found on land. What's the problem? The problem is that this is very hard to extract. Well, all kinds of researchers and companies are working on various technologies, such as special membranes that selectively allow lithium ions to pass through. Why? Because lithium today is absolutely needed, essential for batteries. And we're looking at electric cars making up most of the cars in the near future. And they work on lithium ion batteries. 70% of all the lithium produced in the world goes towards batteries. The second major application is actually glass, believe it or not. Uh, and that's lithium oxide, which is added to silica, uh, which is of course sand when you make glass, because it reduces the melting point and the viscosity and also uh, allows it to have improved physical properties and, and it doesn't expand thermally as much so that uh, you can use uh, these in, in ovenware. Uh, but uh, getting lithium out of the ocean, if there's a way found, that would be a huge benefit to the uh, industry and would facilitate the, uh, uh, the uh, hopeful explosion uh, in terms of market value of, of electric cars because it would make uh, batteries more available and uh, probably cheaper. Uh, there are other uh, smaller uses of, of lithium. Uh, I mean, obviously you've heard of uh, lithium carbonate used in manic depressive uh, illness or bipolar disease as we should term it. And lithium hydroxide uh, can be used to absorb uh, carbon dioxide, for example, in the in uh, space, it was used in the, sp uh, in the space station. Uh, so there are uses for lithium, but of course the major use is in, in batteries. All right, we're going to check traffic and we'll be right back. Uh -huh. 
Life's Everyday Mystery Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figure it out. As many of you know, because you have attended during the last decade, October is the month that we hold our Charche Public Science Symposium which has been a very big event. Uh, we've had hundreds and hundreds of people attend uh, at the Mount Royal Center, but unfortunately, because of COVID, last year we had to switch to online and we still have to uh, maintain that this year. Hopefully we'll be back to, quote, normal next year. In any case, a week from tomorrow, on October 25th, uh, is the first uh, night for our symposium this year. The second night is the Tuesday, October 26th, both at 7 p.m. The theme this year is the science of life and death. We will explore some very interesting things. Uh, we will have Dr. Paul Offit, who you've seen many times on CNN, lead off, talking about living with COVID. Uh, we will have, uh, interestingly enough, a mortician discuss some aspects of death. Dr. Leslie Fellows, a neurologist, will look at the brain and uh, I will look at whether there is any kind of life after death. I think we should have uh, a great time. Of course, it is free. We would, however, ask you to register so we have some idea of, uh, uh, of what to expect and who's watching and the, the technical arrangements that we have to make. And in order to do that, you can go to our website, which is www.mcgill.ca slash OSS. So it's mcgill.ca slash OSS. And uh, there's, of course, information there. You will find it right away about the symposium and about uh, what you can do to uh, join us. And uh, also, of course, uh, numerous other articles on our website and, and uh, the way that you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Also, as, as many of you now know, I've been producing daily three-minute or so videos about current interesting things in the science or sometimes historical things. Uh, and uh, they're highly visual and uh, very quick, only three minutes. And uh, you can see those on our website as well. But if you want to get these daily as I produce them, you can just send me an email and I will put you on the mailing list. And my email is joe.schwarcz at mcgill, M-C-G-I-L-L dot C-A. And of course, that's where you can also ask me questions. All right, uh, I think we have Bonnie on the line. Hello, Dr. Joe. Um, I am trying to drink less caffeine, less coffee, and um, so I bought a few herbal teas, like organic peppermint, organic spearmint, and also organic lemon balm. And I didn't read any of the cautions or ingredients. Um, and one night I was quite cold, so before going to bed, I made a lovely cup of lemon balm tea. I had an excellent sleep and thought nothing of it. But a few nights later, I was cold, had another cup of lemon balm tea, had a very deep, relaxing sleep, thought nothing of it, and this repeated a third time. And then I thought, oh, maybe this lemon balm tea has something to do with the deep sleep. So I went and read the box, 
and it says that it it traditionally used as a sedative. So on the Mount Sinai site, um, it says uh, lemon balm was used to or used to relieve anxiety and um, inability to sleep. So unknown to me, I was taking a sedative. I don't take any other medications. And each tea bag has 1,500 milligrams of lemon balm or Melissa officinalis. So I'm wondering, what are the chemical ingredients that make it a sedative? And um, the directions say you can have up to three cups a day, but it also cautions not to drive heavy equipment because this can cause drowsiness and to drive a motor vehicle with caution. So um, if you want to research this and get back to us next week, or if you could comment well, I can tell you on... Something. I can tell you something about it uh, now. Uh, I mean, lemon balm tea, of course, is, is, is a herbal tea. And as you said, indeed, it is recommended for sleep and... Uh, anxiety and it is a sedative now it contains numerous compounds as any kind of natural substance like that does uh, but there have been some studies although the ones i've looked at have been mostly with mice where giving them lemon balm tea uh, increased the concentration in the nervous system of, of gaba gamma amino butanoic acid which is a, a neurotransmitter that has been in fact linked to sedation so I don't know what specific compound in lemon balm has that effect. I don't think anyone knows. But the product as a whole uh, does have a documented sedative effect. So, so you've not discovered anything really new. Uh, this is something that is, uh, you know, has been uh, established. And it, it, it kind of, you know, is in the same ballpark as, as chamomile and valerian. Uh, lavender sometimes all of these have you know some evidence that they can uh, make you fall asleep but i mean i wouldn't worry really about overdosing if you have a couple of cups of of this but why are you why are you trying to cut down on coffee um well just because uh, I have about two cups a day earlier in the day and if i do have coffee before going to sleep, I kind of remember my scary dreams, which I don't like. And if I have way too much coffee, I have heart palpitations. Okay. So, well, the, um, the, uh, the reason really to, to curb coffee intake is if it uh, gives you problems sleeping or, you know, palpitations. Uh, but, you know, just about, uh, you know, every week we get some study coming out now about the benefits of coffee. So uh, if, if, you know, if you're drinking a few cups of coffee a day and it doesn't give you any sleep problems, doesn't give you palpitations, there's no reason to stop drinking it. Uh, that's about what we can say. But, uh, you know, if you are, have sleep issues, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, then you want to be careful about your caffeine uh, intake. Uh, right, but caffeine does raise your blood pressure, does it not? Because if I take my blood pressure after having a cup of coffee, it can go up by as much as um, 20 digits. Really? 
That's yeah, surprising. and then if uh, I eat a meal, uh, that lowers it. That's surprising. I mean, in some people, coffee does have a momentary uh, effect on on blood pressure, but to raise it by twenty, that's that's quite a quite a lot. Anyway, I, I guess you better stick to your lemon balm. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for that. And uh, anyway, we are uh, unfortunately running out of time once more. But let me remind you, if you want to know more about this year's Trotje Public Science Symposium, please go to our website, www.mcgill.ca slash OSS, or you can send me email at joe.schwartz at mcgill.ca. And uh, I will, of course, remind you again next week, which will be the last time I'll have the chance to do that because the symposium is a week from tomorrow night. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>